Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let me begin by asking a question. A couple of questions. I'll ask it several ways. Is it your ambition to be more like Jesus? Do you want to grow in Christ-likeness in your life? Is it your passion to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or have you become discouraged, beset by some sin that you just can't seem to gain victory over? Or maybe even talking about the subject of holiness triggers all kinds of fears of legalism. Maybe you grew up in an environment like that. Or are you just bored with the Christian life, content to just come to church and rest on the laurels of some decision for Christ that you made years ago? Maybe you once had zeal to imitate Christ and really walk with him in some radical way, but years of mundane life and battles with sins of various kinds and your own failures have just made you weary and defeated. Well, today we're going to begin a four-week series on the subject of sanctification. Now, that's a really big theological topic, and there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything we can say about that in four sermons. So we're going to approach it by trying to answer that question that was up on the screen just a moment ago, how are we sanctified? And we're going to answer it from four different angles. So... First, how are we sanctified? Well, from today's passage, by beholding the glory of the Lord. That's how we're going to answer that today. Next week, Haddon will bring us an answer from John chapter 15 and talk about by abiding in Christ. That's how we are sanctified. Week three will be Nathan from Hebrews 12, and he's going to talk about running the race and submitting to the Lord's discipline. And then finally, Nick will finish it off in the fourth week from Galatians 5 and talk about walking by the Spirit. So those are the four angles we're going to approach the answer to this question from. So that kind of sets the stage for our our next four weeks together. Let's ask the Lord for help. To be made holy is to be made like you, Lord. To be sanctified is to be made like you. And we need your help. So I ask for your help as I try to bring clarity to your word and as as I try to articulate it in a way that will be helpful to your people. I need your help. This people needs your help to hear with open eyes and open hearts. Satan is constantly trying to put the veil over our eyes to keep us in darkness. So I pray that you would take that darkness away. You would remove that veil. You would shine your light and help us see you, to behold you. And as we do, change us into your image. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by defining our terms. What does this word sanctification mean? 
Well, a dictionary defines the word sanctify as to make something holy or pure. It carries a couple of different ideas with it. First, it carries the idea of being set apart from other things. So like God is set apart from all of creation. He's not like anything in creation. So this idea of being set apart. And the second idea is that of moral purity, moral purity. So that's the two ideas that this word sanctify carries with it. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book, that big thick 1200 page book, he defines sanctification like this. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and believers, so both together, that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So it's a process, a progressive work of God and believers together that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. And in fact, that's how we usually talk about sanctification. It's a process, it's not an instantaneous change, it's a progressive work. It involves both God working in us and us working. So unlike uh, regeneration and justification, which are entirely a work of God, and we have no part in that, we are passive in that, as theologians say, we are active in the process of sanctification. We have to pursue holiness. In fact, I would say sanctification, frankly, is just living the day-to-day Christian life. It's growing to maturity in Christ. It's fighting the fight of faith. It's spiritual warfare against the enemy of our souls. So there can be no passivity on our part. But I think this only captures one aspect of sanctification. And we often forget that there's an aspect of sanctification that is instantaneous. And it is entirely a work of God. Theologians usually call this definitive sanctification. Or sometimes you might hear the term um, positional sanctification. Now what is that? Well, that's a sanctification that occurs simultaneously with our conversion... And so we have two aspects to the sanctification, a definitive and a progressive. One happens at the point of our conversion, the other goes on throughout our Christian life until we reach glory. And we see these two aspects captured in Scripture in in the different ways that Scripture talks about sanctification. So let me just give you an example. Um, Look at... You're only a few pages away. You can flip over and follow if you want. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Paul says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Listen to the tense of the verbs here. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the Corinthians used to be like those who lived according to that long list of sin. That characterized their lives. But now, he says, 
they were washed, they were sanctified, past tense. That's really interesting. It's, in other words, it's already happened. And by lumping sanctification in with washing, we think of that as regeneration, and, and uh, justification, we think of that as a work of God, that God declares us just, there's nothing we do there. Paul clearly sees this aspect of sanctification as definitive. It occurs at a moment in time, it's a work of God, and it's done. It's done the moment we're saved. Now, I picked this example from 1 Corinthians. I could have gone to a lot of places in Scripture where sanctification is spoken of in the past tense. But I picked this one because if you know anything about the Corinthian church, you know they were far from perfect, right? All kinds of stuff going on in that church. Sexual sin, squabbling about who's the greatest preacher, uh, misuse of spiritual gifts. That letter, 1 Corinthians, is written to correct a whole multitude of problems in the church. So whatever Paul meant by saying you were sanctified, he did not mean that they'd achieved some kind of sinless perfection in their actual behavior, obviously. So let me ask then, what is this definitive sanctification? I'll give you, give you a little definition here. It's a work of God by which we are made holy in Christ. In Christ. Those last two words are really important. It's a work of God by which you are made holy in Christ. At the moment of our new birth, we are set apart by God as belonging to him. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And from God's perspective, outside of time, that's done. That's not a repeatable thing. We don't need to repeat that. We don't grow in that. It's done. From God's perspective, we're holy. And here's why understanding this definitive aspect of sanctification is so important. Before we're, we're going to spend most of these four weeks talking about the progressive aspect. But I'm spending a lot of time on this now because I think it's really important. Here's why. Because this is the position from which you must fight the fight of faith and pursue holiness in your day-to-day -day life. You must fight from this position of having been sanctified, past tense. Strange, isn't it? We have to fight to be sanctified by standing in our sanctification. Isn't that amazing? We've said it many times over the years, but it has to be said again. Growth in the Christian life is a process of becoming who you are in Christ, who you already are in Christ. So, we have to make progress in sanctification not in order to become more sanctified, but because we already are sanctified in Christ. We're just trying to get the outward flesh to conform to what God has already done internally and spiritually. You are being sanctified in your actual behavior because you have been sanctified in Christ. And maybe the clearest passage from Scripture I can give you that points, that points to this is Hebrews 10, 14. Listen to how the writer to Hebrews talks about being holy here. For with a single offering, he is forever perfected, past tense, it's done, he's forever perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, which is it? Have we been perfected or are we being perfected? 
It's like the author can't make up his mind, right? It's both. It's both. We have been perfected, and therefore, you are being sanctified. You are being sanctified. Now, okay. So you have to live out of who you are in Christ. If you don't, if you try to pursue holiness by grinding out obedience to lists of do's and don'ts, here's what's going to happen. One of two things is going to happen. If you're doing pretty well at that list, you're going to become a prideful Pharisee looking down on others, thinking you've got it all together. I'm pretty spiritual. But if you're failing and struggling at that list, you're going to become really discouraged and defeated and be tempted to give up. One of two things is going to happen there. Now, none of us wants to wind up in either of those places, I hope. That's a performance-oriented, grinded-out kind of approach to life. But listen, understanding that God has already set us apart as holy in Christ means that you're free to pursue actually living out that holiness without the fear that every failure means we're being condemned or every victory will become a source of pride, sinful pride. So living out of the knowledge that we are already holy in Christ sets us on solid ground for pursuing holiness, not out of duty, but out of delight. We can now delight in this pursuit. One who has been sanctified in Christ has a new heart that wants to obey, that delights to obey. The Lord's commands are not burdensome anymore. We want more than anything to be like Jesus, to Growth in the Christian life is simply becoming what we are in Christ. Okay, so that's all by way of introduction. Now, before we dive into our text, let me just say one more thing. We have three powerful and united enemies arrayed against us in this sanctification process. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They're arrayed against us in the process aspect of this sanctification. They can't do anything about what God has done for us in Christ, but they can really attack us in the process. And they love it when we're prideful Pharisees or discouraged and defeated, and they don't care which one it is. Because either one or both will keep you ineffective for the kingdom of God. So this sermon series seeks to answer these enemies of our souls by looking at how Scripture says we are sanctified in our actual behavior. So that's the progressive aspect that we're going to talk about the rest of the way through this. And the answer to that question that we're going to give today, how are we sanctified from this passage, is this. We're sanctified by beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Now... Any talk about being made holy has to begin with the holiness of God. We're called to be holy because God is holy, 1 Peter 1.15. Holiness is not simply one attribute of God among many. Rather, it's the very essence of his nature. It means that he's set apart from all else and morally perfect in every way. In fact, he's not morally perfect as judged by some um, list of what constitutes moral perfection outside of him. 
He is the standard of moral perfection. And any kind of judgment about whether someone or something is morally perfect is measured according to him. Now, this subject, the holiness of God, would require an entire sermon series in itself that'd be weeks long to give it its adequate due. So that's not our aim today. But keep this in mind as we go through this whole series. God calls you and me to be holy because he is holy. Because we are, let me, let me go back to Genesis for a moment, because we are image bearers of him. So if he's holy, we ought to be holy because we bear his image. Little reflections of God in his glory. Now, sin has wrecked all of that, but salvation sets us on a path that will end us up, guess what, with new and glorified bodies. We receive a new heart now and new and glorified bodies later. And listen, our glorification is simply the end process of sanctification. That's the, that's the finished product, if you will. So we are now in process of becoming who we are in Christ. And when we're glorified, we will have completed that process. We will actually be in real time and behavior what we already are in Christ. You, you get the feeling I'm trying to drive that point home, right? Now, the way this happens, the way this process takes place is through seeing, or the word in our text today is beholding. It's a scriptural principle that we see repeatedly that we become what we behold. And that's true of anything. If you spend your time focusing, concentrating, um, fixating on something, you will become like it. It's true even if you're worshiping false gods. Uh, Psalm 135.18 says of those who make and bow down to the false gods, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You put your trust in that, you put your focus on it, you, when you make something, you envision it, you gotta, you gotta plan it out in your mind first so your attention is drawn to that. When you fix your attention on the wrong things, you're gonna become like that. So in this case, in Psalm 135, the, the idol worshipers are giving their attention and focus to an idol, and they become like it. Now, let's flip that around. If you give your attention and focus to God, you become like him. And I think the clearest passage showing that in the New Testament is 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Some of you probably memorize this. Beloved, we are God's children now. So there's the finished work of God in us. We already are God's children. But then he says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's that that weird dynamic going on again. We are, but we are not yet. <laughs> what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. We will see him as he is. And then here's the moral purity aspect. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So when he appears, we'll be like him. But even our current hope in him before we see him with our physical eyes results in a desire to be like him, a desire to live pure and holy lives now. 
So there's the process of becoming what we are. John Piper in his book, uh, When I Don't Desire God, he has a chapter entitled, The Fight for Joy is a Fight to See. The Fight for Joy is a Fight to See. That's a good summary of our part in the sanctification process. We have to fight for joy by fighting to see because we will become like what we're looking at. So there are two types of seeing, right? There's seeing with the physical eyes in your head. That's not what, we're, that's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. And then there's the seeing with the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the mind. That's what he's talking about. He's talking, he, he wants us, it, it takes a miracle. It takes a miracle to see that way. God has to do a work on our hearts. Where do I get that? Look at verses 12 to 16. Paul uses this imagery of Moses veiling his face after he would speak to the Lord. That comes right out of Exodus 34. Whenever Moses would go into the tabernacle and speak to the Lord directly, he'd come out and his face would be shining with this light. Kind of, the Old Testament, it was called the Shekinah glory. And he'd cover his face because it was fading away. And he didn't want the Israelites to see that fading glory. Paul uses that veil as an analogy of what lies over the hearts of the Jewish people, even to his day and even to our day. They're still mostly blind to it. They can't see Christ as the beautiful, glorious treasure that he is because, verse 14, their minds were hardened. The veil remains unlifted. It only gets lifted in Christ. But look, it's not just the Jews who can't see this. It's everyone. So I want you to skip down into chapter 4 for a second and look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. That's everybody apart from Christ. In, the, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see that seeing who is the image of God. So Paul says that if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. They can't see because the God of this world, who's that? Satan. Yeah, that's right, Satan. It's a world flesh devil. So the devil is being spoken of here. He's, and what has he done? What's he done to their minds? He's blinded their minds. He's blinded their minds so that they can't see. Apart from Christ, we're blind. We hear the words of the gospel, but it lands on dead, hard hearts. We're like blind people being told how beautiful the painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is. You can hear the words, but you got no idea what it is. You got no idea what they're talking about because you can't see it. You can't see it. So what happens? How does God remedy this veil or this darkness, this blindness? Well, the Holy Spirit comes in in chapter 3, verse 17. This is one of the clearest passages teaching the deity of the Holy Spirit. He's not just God's influence in the world or some mysterious presence or the Star Wars force. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity. 
And he's called Lord here. That's significant. That's the same title that's applied to God the Father and God the Son elsewhere in the New Testament. And when he comes onto the scene, what happens? Freedom. Freedom. Verse 17. That's literally how the Greek reads here. The prepositional phrase that you have in your ESV, there is, that comes before the word freedom, isn't there in the Greek. So literally, the Greek reads, and when he and when the spirit of the Lord, where the spirit of the Lord is, freedom. Freedom. His presence means freedom. The veil is removed. We can see with unveiled face. Or as Paul repeats in a different way in chapter 4, verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So where is Paul drawing this let light shine out of darkness imagery from? Come on, we just finished this book last week. Genesis chapter 1, right? Remember way back, almost two years ago? Paul reaches all the way back there to draw this imagery of God speaking light into darkness, and that's what he does. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. And what happens when the Holy Spirit shines the light of the gospel into our darkness, our blindness? We see. We see. And what do we see? We behold the glory of the Lord. Now that begs the next question. What do we mean by the glory of the Lord? We usually have some image in our minds of a glowing or shining light like, like that Shekinah glory I mentioned. You know, the, the pillar of cloud had this light shining out of it that led the Israelites in the wilderness. The pillar of fire. Maybe the glory of God descending on the temple in Jerusalem after they built it and Solomon dedicated it and they couldn't, priests couldn't even go into it if you remember that story so that's certainly one physical manifestation of the glory of God but I think it's a lot more than just a light typically theologians describe the glory of the Lord as the beauty of the perfections of God's many attributes on display for all to see so God displays his many attributes, his perfect attributes for all to see. But I want to go even a step beyond that. Because I don't think God is satisfied with us just seeing his glory, even with our new spiritual eyes. Rather, it's a type of seeing that delights in what it sees. God is most glorified when we don't just see but delight in all that he is. When we enjoy all that he is, when we treasure all that he is. So this is a seeing that doesn't just say, oh, I get it now. This is a seeing that says, oh, I love that. That's beautiful. That's amazing. I want more of that. That's the kind of seeing it's, that it is. It's a seeing at the level of our affections and desires, not just our intellect. It's a seeing at the experiential level, not just the understanding level. 
Receiving Jesus at initial salvation and growing in sanctification from there isn't a matter of mere intellectual comprehension of facts. It's seeing like this, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. So praise God that the Holy Spirit does take, take away that veil and dispel that darkness. Now, I want to be clear in all that I've said, this seeing isn't perfect in this life, not even when the Holy Spirit takes away the veil. Where do I see that in the text? Well, it's in the Greek word that's translated beholding. It literally means to see as in a mirror or through a glass. It's the same idea, not the same word, but the same idea as Paul has back in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, when he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So in response to all that I've said so far to this point, you ought to be saying, wait a minute, Bruce, I don't experience that kind of seeing all the time. Sometimes it's really hard to see. And the veil seems to be back in place and the darkness doesn't have much light in it. My answer is, yep. Because the beholding isn't perfect yet. It's like looking through a mirror. But we ought to be experiencing some glimpses of it sometimes. And we're encouraged to pursue that kind of seeing more and more. So if it's getting hard to see, let me ask you this question. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? Are you looking at Jesus or another Netflix show? Are you beholding the glory of the Lord or a promotion at work? You spend 10 or 15 minutes a couple times a week beholding glory and hours on your computer looking at who knows what, porn, endless news feeds, social media. What are you looking at? We've got to open our eyes. So what happens when we behold the glory of the Lord like this? When we see him as a gloriously beautiful, delightful treasure, when we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, the word Paul uses here is transformation. We're being transformed into his image. Look at the second half of verse 18. What image is that we're being transformed into? The image that we're beholding, the image of the Lord. And how is that happening? Instantly? No, gradually, as indicated by the words, from glory to glory. That's literally what the Greek says, from glory to glory. So maybe the first step of obedience in your Christian life, you feel a joy of that. That's glory. But then there's more. You take the next step of obedience, and there's more glory in that. The more you become like Jesus, the more you reflect, you become a little reflection of his glory. Okay, now, I don't want to leave the impression that this is a smooth road from glory to glory. It's just a smooth upward. If you were to put on a graph, it'd be straight up toward our glorification. It's not like a straight-line graph or continuous uninterrupted progress. There's battles we win and some we lose. There's tough times and easy times. There's successes and failures. It's two steps forward and one back. That's why the Bible calls it a fight of faith. 
And remember those enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're all trying to pull the veil back over your heart to plunge you back into the darkness. And they'll do anything they can to get you there. But there's no greater delight than beholding Jesus like this. And when we do, we will experience the transformation. More and more, we're going to lose a taste for the world and the little puny sinful pleasures that it offers. And we'll experience less and less attraction to those sinful things and more and more attraction to the delights that the Lord offers. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. All right. So how do we behold this glory? Let me wrap up by talking about that for a couple minutes here. How do we behold the glory? If we have to behold the glory of the Lord, where is it? How do we see it? Because we're, again, we're not talking about the physical eyes. We're talking about the eyes of the heart. So let's get practical. Let me say at the outset, before I talk about what you can do to behold the glory, let me just remind you that the Holy Spirit is in you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is in you. All the veil-removing, darkness-dispelling power you need in order to see, you already have. God is at work in you and has been ever since you were saved. So what you really need to do is open your spiritual eyes. But let me give you uh, three practical places we can go again and again to behold the glory of the Lord. We'll talk a lot in depth. I think the other guys in the next three weeks will probably talk more about each of these and more. First is prayer. If you, so let me just say, if you lack this sight, this kind of seeing, ask for it. Just ask the Lord for it. He wants you to see his glory. So ask him to overcome every hindrance that the world, the flesh, and the devil put up against you to keep you from seeing. The second is creation. That's right, just creation, the whole world. Do you know that the glory of the Lord is all around you all the time, every day? Our eyes just aren't open to it. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So day and night, everywhere, there's no speech, there, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Why are we having such trouble hearing and seeing this? The psalmist says it's all around us. God is shouting his glory through creation. Their voice goes out throughout all through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So his glory is displayed in all creation. In the beauty of a sunset, in the pleasure of eating ice cream, in the power and fearsomeness of a thunderstorm or wildfires that kill people in Maui, his glory is displayed even then in that. In the grass you mow every week, in fact, the glory of the Lord is sitting right next to you. <laughs> We're all created in the image of God, so guess what? Whether you like him or not, that person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you is God's handiwork. They're a little reflection of God's glory, even if they're not a believer. And if they are a believer, 
then every evidence of grace in their lives is like a beacon of glory light shining out at you saying, look, this is God at work. This is me at work, the Lord is saying. See my glory. Every little evidence of grace in that person. Every little evidence of grace in you. So, you know, we're real quick to see the devil's work, to see sin and strife and chaos in our world. Our problem isn't that God isn't showing his glory, it's that we're not looking. We're not looking. So God is gonna end up being glorified even in calamities like wildfires and hurricanes and disasters. He's also glorified in his grace work in us and in all of creation. And then, of course, finally, there's the word of God. We see God's glory in a general way in creation, but not a saving way. But here, in this book, we see that despite all the sin and rebellion in the world, God is still sovereign. He's still good. He's still all-powerful. Here, we see more clearly, even though it's still like through a mirror dimly, but we see it more clearly even than in creation, God's nature and character. And we see that most blazingly revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Haddon, Nathan, and Nick will probably have more to say about that, so I'm not going to steal their sermons. But don't you realize that God has given you a love letter here? See his glory in here. This is not words on a page I mean, most of you probably have multiple copies of this in your house. In fact, I'll bet almost all of you have multiple translations on your phones right now. That's God's glory shining out to you. Learn to see this, as, that, that this book gives you insight into the mind and heart of God, to see the mind and heart of God as glorious. Don't just see it as words on a page or a screen or as checking off boxes on a Bible reading plan. This is not a reading assignment. This is glory. This is glory. Amen. So let me end by asking again, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? What do the eyes of your heart and mind spend most of their time dwelling on? Are you seeing the glory of God in creation yes. or ignoring it? Are you seeing the glory of God in his word or is it just a few verses skimmed as part of some devotional book? Ask God to open your eyes so that you can see like this. Not the eyes of your head, the eyes of your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the glory of the Lord all around you and in his word. Let's pray. These enemies of our souls, Father, the world, the flesh, and the devil want to keep us from seeing because they want to keep us from being transformed into the image of Christ. The only way tra transformation is going to happen is if we can see. So thank you that you've already given the Holy Spirit to us, already given us everything we need to see. Now, Lord, get our eyes open. Don't let us be asleep in the light. Open our eyes to see your glory in all that you've made in this beautiful world and 
in your word and wherever else you shine that glory light. Help us see so that we're changed into your image. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.